Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. This evening we're going to continue our walk through the Gospel of Luke, just taking a look at the life of Jesus. And last week, Dr. Light took us through one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which Jesus told after having an extended conversation with a lawyer. And this lawyer apparently felt significant anxiety about his status with God. And the whole controversy when you get into the discussion between Jesus and this lawyer over who is my neighbor started because the lawyer was anxious about his relationship with God and he wanted to know what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus' initial answer instead of sort of relieving his anxiety kind of amplified it a bit and so the lawyer does what lawyers do and he started to play with definitions like who is my neighbor and what do you mean by neighbor and uh, at the end of the conversation you know, Jesus cannot be fooled, and he gets the lawyer to confess the right answer, that the best definition of neighbor is one who shows mercy. Uh, Now, the question I had for the text this evening that um, we'll be looking at immediately following the one Dr. Light looked at um, is going to deal with anxiety, and we see that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is interacting with anxious people. And this lawyer is an anxious person, and knowing the right answer, and after this conversation with Jesus, it seems like his anxiety actually increases. We're not sure what happens, whether or not after he leaves Jesus, his anxiety is resolved. We can only wonder the effect of Jesus' words on the lawyer. Um, Maybe it relieved his concern. Maybe it amplified it. At the very least, Jesus forced him to look beyond his limited view of the law and the purpose of it and to understand and grapple with the concept of mercy. And often grappling with mercy tends to sort of interrupt our our anxious thoughts uh, because God's mercy actually deconstructs our anxieties, sometimes painfully so, one by one. We can only wonder and hope that Jesus' words relieve the lawyer's anxiety. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe the lawyer just, just left still confused and anxious, maybe redefining words in his mind. He had already redefined neighbor. Maybe, you know, uh, he's doing the same thing with mercy. He redefined neighbor to make it smaller and more manageable and something he could control. Maybe he was going to do the same thing with mercy, not realizing that real mercy is no small thing as Jesus illustrates in the parable, that God's mercy is huge and it's unmanageable and it changes us and it can relieve our anxieties. So the lawyer isn't the only one dealing with anxiety. Today we're going to see another form of anxiety. There's all types of anxiety, spiritual anxiety, political anxiety, relational anxiety, um, big and small. And this next story in Luke's gospel demonstrates this well in Luke chapter 10. Uh, starting at verse 38, reading down through verse 42. It says this, Now as they went on their way, 
Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with serving, and, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Here we see that Martha is, is distracted. She's worried and troubled about many things. And Jesus is going to interrupt her anxiety, much to her surprise. It, it, it's, while it's painfully embarrassing uh, for Martha, for Jesus to do this, Jesus isn't just giving Martha a gift. Through Martha, and as we read this passage, he's giving us a gift too. Now Luke tells the story quite effectively and uh, through this story, we're going to see sort of two points, how, how life, just normal, everyday life, tends to expose our anxieties, and secondly, how the Lord interrupts our anxieties and offers his comfort. So first, let's look at the text and see how life just kind of tends to expose our anxieties, re- revealing the fundamentals of anxiety. There's three fundamentals I want to point out from the text. The first fundamental of, of anxiety, or at least increased anxiety. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's, it's failing to accept reality in a broken, fallen world. See, we can avoid trouble temporarily, but not for long. And when we try to live as if life should go a certain way, trouble-free, and deny that that's just not reality, we tend to actually amplify our anxiety. And in verse 30, 38, when Jesus enters the village and, and Martha graciously welcomes him into her house, this hospitality to Jesus was a real blessing. I mean, Jesus faced trouble during this season of his life. In, in Luke 6, at the beginning of his ministry, he, he was rejected at Nazareth. Literally, a riot in Jesus' hometown broke out broke out, and it nearly got him thrown off a cliff. He had trouble from leaders who sought to undermine him at every turn. He had pressing needs placed upon him from the crowds, from their sin and their sickness. He would soon face crowds that would turn on him and mock him, the disciples that would betray him, and soldiers that would beat him to death and hang him on a tree. That that Jesus faced troubling times. Troubling times are not new. You know, we... I've been talking to a lot of people, and as a pastor, people are just living in a season of, of trouble and anxiety with COVID and racial tensions and political divisiveness and riots. And while our, you know, our present trouble seems unprecedented, the reality is that our troubles are not all that unique. They're as old as the fall. And of course, I'm the first to admit that troubling times wear us down. They, they tire us out. They discourage us. But developing resilience for life's troubles is a peculiar thing. I found that, that most, the most resilient people I know tend to have realistic expectations about the troubles of life. And the Bible, if it does anything, it paints an accurate picture of reality, and it's not always pretty. And those who reject the Bible's teaching about the fallen nature of man and the brokenness of the world are sitting ducks 
for being very easily disillusioned and overcome with debilitating anxiety. And so let's stay grounded in the scripture because it prepares us for life, for a troubled life. It kind of gives us a battle-hardened perspective so that we can enter in and not increase anxiety unnecessarily. So that's the first fundamental when we fail to resolve, be resolved with the fact of what the Bible says about the fallen world. The second fundamental is anxiety, as we see in this passage, it stems from misaligned priorities, not sort of innate personality types. Right? If you read verses 39 and 40, we see that, that Mary decided to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, it's common for people to approach this passage doing a, a comparison and contrast between the personalities of Mary and Martha. You know, that Martha's the anxious one, and, and Mary's, you know, she's just chill and laid back. Martha's dutiful, and Mary's personable. Martha's hardworking, and Mary's deep thinking. Martha's practical and Mary's ideological. In fact, Joanne Weaver writes this, Mary's bent was to meander through life, pausing to smell the roses. Martha was more likely to pick the roses, quickly cut the stems at an angle, and arrange them in a vase with baby's breath and ferns. Right? So, and we tend to do this with the scriptures, but it's really, it's an overly simplistic interpretation that casts Mary as this model of virtue just because she's a thinker and she's artistic and, and Martha is a, casts as a total fool. But, but the reality is, is they both have strengths and weaknesses. And I, I'm not just saying this because my wife's name is Martha. She did not put me up to this. And her sister's name, her legal name is Mary. <laughs> and my wife is the dutiful one. Um, I'm just saying, okay? Um, but, you know, this, this stems from a misguided modern-day framework where we take personality theory and kind of awkwardly place it over the scriptures that were written, you know, thousands of years previous. The main problem of anxiety is not personality. Anyone, no matter your personality, can become anxious. Phil Riken says it this way, Martha served with her hands while Mary served with her mind and her heart. But the passage illustrates how anxiety de- develops when our priorities are misaligned and, and Martha chose to be distracted from uh, Jesus through her serving. But it's just as possible to become distracted from Jesus through your deep thinking and your study of theology. And if you don't believe me, just go and attend seminary. See, the problem here is distractions that lead to misaligned priorities. Martha lost sight that Jesus was more important than serving with her gifts and her vision. And countless pastors from our own presbytery have ruined their ministry by falling into this trap Countless spouses have little tenderness and love toward the person they married because they failed to nurture their soul in the grace and the forgiveness and the love of their first spouse, Jesus Christ. Sometimes the best counsel that I have gotten and that I have given is when someone comes to me and they're wrestling and they're obviously very anxious and they want counsel And sometimes it's best just to listen and give counsel, but sometimes the best thing to do is say, have you gone to the Lord with this yet? You'd be surprising how many people will say, 
No. They haven't. And the Lord calls us to make him a priority, to nurture our relationship with him, and to go with him first. Let me ask you, where do you take your anxiety? No one loves you more than Jesus. No one understands you better than Jesus. No one has suffered for you more than Jesus. And no one guarantees more for your future and for your ultimate blessing than Jesus. So why don't you go to Jesus? And how hesitant are you to go? So those are the first sort of two roots of anxiety. First, that, that, you know, we can amplify our anxiety by not aligning our life with the Bible, that, that since the fall, life's full of trouble. And, and anxiety stems from misaligned priorities, not, not personalities. Anyone can become anxious as they turn away from the Lord and focus on their problems. But the third fundamental here is um, anxiety is not quiet and still. It, it rumbles. It, it rattles. There's a pressure within it. You know, anxiety is something that builds up within our hearts and our minds and, and this pressure, you know, accumulates and, and sometimes ultimately explodes outwardly and our, our loved ones have the privilege of seeing that. But look at it in verse 40. You know, Martha's anxiety is building up. She goes up to the Lord and said, Lord! Now by this point, her anxiety is built up ahead of steam. Lord, do you not care? Not care that my sister has left me? Yes, she has left me to serve alone. Tell her to help me. Do you see what she's doing here? She, she's assuming things about the Lord. Lord, do you not care? Do you really think that's a question or more of a statement? When your wife says, do you not care? Are you interpreting that as a question or a statement? This is a statement more than an honest question. And she's jumping to conclusions about her sister leaving her alone prematurely despite the limited evidence. I don't think Jesus was demanding dinner by 6 p.m. And then she gets bossy with a demanding spirit. Tell her to help me. See, this is what anxiety looks like. It, it, it builds up with false assumptions, jumping to conclusions, and, and forgetting your place and becoming bossy. We all know what it looks like if we're honest with ourselves. And when we allow anxiety to, to flow like this, it usually flows first from accusing the Lord, then accusing or assuming the wrong about our neighbors, and then just becoming a miserable person to be around by being bossy and demanding. How does anxiety evidence itself in your life? What false assumptions are you tempted to jump to about God as you face difficulties? What false assumptions about others? How does anxiety make you demanding on others, on God? So in summary, some of these fundamentals of anxiety is that uh, it increases when we fail to accept a biblical worldview. Its root stems from misaligned priorities, not your personality. And anxiety doesn't remain still. It accumulates, it expands as we formulate judgments that smother the truth about God and smother the truth about others in relationship. So that's our first point. How does this passage reveal 
the fundamentals of anxiety. Our second point is, how does the Lord interrupt our anxiety? I'm so thankful that we have a Lord who interrupts our anxiety. He doesn't ignore it like, you know, we're, we're, we're just some annoying little child. He takes our anxiety seriously and he interrupts it like a faithful friend. He does not punish it like some impatient tyrant and just blow up at Martha here, but, but he patiently walks her through it in order to comfort her and bring resolution. Notice what he says in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. The Lord of all glory interrupts Martha's anxiety with a comfort that is personal, relational, and permanently present. Okay, let's just walk through it first. How is this comfort that the Lord offers personal? Notice he says, Martha, Martha. He interrupts her by calling out her name. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. He, you know, this tells us God, our God is a personal God. Like that's one of the greatest comforts of the Christian faith, that we worship a God who knows us better than we know, know ourselves, who loves us more deeply than we can ever imagine. And he doesn't just know us, he knows the particulars of our anxiety, he, he knows our troubles, both those things that are the external pressures in our lives, as well as those internal pressures, whether they're big or small, whether they're real or imagined. He knows the troubles that you ruminate upon, as well as the ones you try to distract yourself from, because he knows you by name. He is attuned to you. He is listening and watching, as he's listening and watching Martha, and he is approachable, and he speaks to us by his word and his spirit. And so he interrupts us very personally, because he knows us. But second, he's, he's relational. And there is a distinction between being personal and relational. How do I mean? He doesn't just say, Martha, Martha, and call out her name, but, but he disagrees with her. He says, listen, I, I see you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. See, while the hope of our faith, of Christianity, is that we have a God who knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us more than we can imagine, we must remember that one of the hopes of Christianity is God is radically other than us. He is distinct from us, and that means you can have a real relationship with him. He can argue with you. He can disagree with you. But he can also comfort you with a comfort that is alien from you and more powerful than you can imagine. Apart from what our culture says, our God is not a social construct and Jesus is not a personal extension of your fondest wish projections. Nor is he an idea to ponder and manipulate in your mind. Our God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus and he is real and he is in control and he is more than free to think and act on his own and to disagree with you and to correct you. In other words, being a Christian is about having a real relationship. Now, while all of us come into the kingdom because we have childlike faith, Christianity 
once you're in the kingdom, is actually for grown-ups. <laughs> it's for people who want an authentic, real relationship. When I was a kid, you know, I had friends who had imaginary friends. I never did. I thought that was weird. But I had friends who had imaginary... It was a childish thing, an imaginary friend. And you know what my friends' imaginary friends did? They always agreed with my friend. They never disagreed. <laughs> and they would try to outvote me. Well, my imaginary friend said that he agrees, so we win. <laughs> I know this is silly, but why am I belaboring the point? I'm belaboring the point because idolatry is bound up in the heart of mankind. And it's all too common for religious people to believe God is what we make of him, what we imagine of him. But if that is true, he's just another dumb idol. And I honestly think that we can make an idol calling him Jesus. Many people do. Rather than wrestling with the real Jesus as he is presented to us in the historical, trustworthy scriptures. That is why he can help you. And that is why when you turn to secular culture, the only thing you will get for handling your anxiety is what you can do for yourself. And not that these are unhelpful, I mean, relaxing technique, relaxation techniques, breathing deeply, going for a walk, listening to calm music or medical treatment or learning life management techniques of balancing work, rest, and play. Those, those are helpful in the short term for anxieties, but they'll never prove sufficient. There are certainly things we can do to unwind and relieve stress and lower cortisol levels, but we must be careful not to confuse internal conditions or changing our psychological or emotional state, which kind of lessens anxiety. We can't confuse that with the external reality and a change of external condition that offers lasting comfort. Listen, volume certainly has its benefits to relieve, relieve anxiety, but, and you might need it during a tragedy or a crisis, but when you come out of that tragedy or crisis, volume is no more helpful to you unless you get more resources because you have to still face the unchanged reality. And this is what Christianity, this is what gives us so much hope and distinguishes our hope. See, Christian hope is not found in managing anxiety through spiritual disciplines of meditation, prayer, or fasting. As helpful as those are, that's not the essence of Christianity. If that were then the hope of Christianity would be little different from other religious systems. Eastern religious systems have a ton of techniques to help you to learn to manage your, your, uh, your anxiety. But the hope of Christianity is in a person who changes the external conditions that are causing your anxiety. And Mary realizes that this person sitting in her living room has the power to heal the sick, to still the storm, to raise the dead. And he comforts the anxious, not by simply asking them, well, go ahead and have a good cry and then think positively. No, he comforts us by taking our sorrows upon himself and exchanging our sorrows with his healing power. And he flips the situation around such that the downward spiral of sin and death is set on a completely new trajectory of righteousness, life, and hope. And the really good news is that this 
hope is not just a force. It's, it's not a magical force that you get plugged into it and you have new energy for living your life. This is a person to reckon with, to revel in, a person who lives and loves and knows you. He really does. And he calls out your name. Martha, Martha. This is the hope of Christianity. That in Jesus, God came near and he sits in our living room. He knows you. He calls you by name. He understands what troubles you. See, in understanding this relational nature with our God, it's essential. It is essential. And that's why Jesus says, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing. And what is that one thing? Knowing this man who's sitting in your living room named Jesus. It changes everything. Whether your anxieties are big or small. Now, admittedly, in Martha's context, currently in this passage, her troubles are not very significant, right? They're not major problems. She's, she's just overwhelmed with responsibility. She has, you know, a list of mental responsibilities in her head to serve her dinner guests, right? It's not that big of a deal, but the fact that this is put in the Bible shows us that, that Jesus cares about the little anxieties. And he speaks to the little anxieties with a corrective word. And he doesn't simply do it to, to defend Mary's choice, but to help Martha, to care for her tenderly. And the solution for Martha's anxiety was not to be relieved from the burden and have others just come and do more work for her. Martha's anxiety, though small, was cancerous. It was metastic. It was self-imposed. And just like a cancer, uh, you know, there's no off switch for this type of anxiety. And if Jesus had released Mary to serve Martha, she would have only doubled down on her anxiety and pulled Mary into it. That's the danger of anxiety. So when... We say that the comfort of Jesus is essential. We don't mean that it's only essential for big things. We, we mean it's essential for little anxieties because little anxieties, just like little cancers, are deadly. <laughs> the sinful heart, when it wraps itself around these anxieties, it's pretty complicated. And you need Jesus for every form of anxiety, including the self-imposed ones that you bring upon yourself. And so I ask you, you know, what, what are those little anxieties that are just like little paper cuts that are starting to bleed you? Is it your relationship with peers in your high school or with your parents? Is it the political landscape of the day? Is it your back pain, your finances? Jesus cares about those little anxieties, but he also cares about bigger troubles in the broader context We have to remember that Jesus um, was going to be (laughs) crucified here shortly. Um, Leaders were undermining him in every turn. He lived a troubled life. And sometimes our troubles get big. Life is full of trouble. We've already talked about that. And, uh, And Jesus came to do what he did, to deal with our big anxieties, the fear of death the thing that's ultimately going to end every hope. And thankfully, you know, we have friends in our lives that can help us in our anxiety. 
And, uh, but quite honestly, most of my friends in my life can only help me with small anxieties. Um, when, I, when I'm stressed and I'm feeling a financial pinch, they might be able to give me some money or $50 gift certificate that helps. But the uniqueness of having Jesus as your friend is that you have someone who can really help you no matter how big your problems. See, I'm very thankful to have friends who know me and understand me and can commiserate with me, but they can't provide me lasting comfort. But Jesus can. He is the one that can take away the cancer of sin and hopelessness. And he is the one that's sitting in Mary and Martha's living room. And this is why Mary is so captivated by him because she realizes how excellent it is to be in relationship with someone who not only knows her and sympathizes with her, but who has the power to change her circumstances. That is a tremendous friend. It's like being in an airplane uh, that is suffering from multiple malfunctions and it is going to crash. And you're in this airplane and you might have some friends who can relieve you by giving comforting words but they really can't stop the plane from crashing. But Mary's in a situation where she's in a situation that it's like being in a plane that's malfunctioning about to crash, only Clark Kent is in the plane. See, without Clark Kent, you have every reason to be anxious. It's going to crash. But with him in the plane, it changes everything. And if Christianity is true, then Superman is on your plane God is among us. Jesus shows us what he's like and he's capable of doing whatever we need for ultimate healing. And being connected with him is the one necessary thing that changes our perspective on everything. The question is, do you believe that? Mary did. And that's why she was able to make the right choice. So we see here that the hope of the gospel is not just this subjective wish projection, but it's the objective power of the gospel that's rooted in an objective truth that God has walked among us, that he has faced all the scary monsters and defeated them. Third, not only does the Lord interrupt anxious people with a comfort that's personal and relational, but one that is permanently present for the taken. Taking In verse 42, Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. When Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion, that word portion is merida, and just like in English, it often refers to a meal. As Phil Riken said, while Martha was preparing a meal, a good portion, Mary was having another meal a better one, a very good portion. Jesus' words to Martha about Mary were meant to penetrate Mary's heart, that she would see that Mary has a good portion and she can have that same good portion if she would only take it. And Jesus' intervention with Martha here reflects what the psalmist says Remember the psalmist, we read it this morning, there's nothing on earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. My what? My portion forever. Now certainly, Jesus values our service 
But as the Lord of all glory, he does not need our service. He can take care of anything he needs on his own. What he treasures is our fellowship and our friendship. And we must remember that the necessary thing in our relationship with him is not something we do for Jesus, but something that he does for us as we sit with him and listen to him. And as we do that, he begins to change our desires. He begins to change our values. He begins to change what we turn to for our meal, our sustenance, our portion. And he becomes our desire. And that changes us internally. Much of our anxiety is tied up in pride and self-reliance. And that anxiety is relieved when we turn to Jesus his abiding presence gives us what our heart, restless hearts need. But it also changes our external reality. See, other aspects of our anxiety are tied up in the storms of life. And like the disciples in the boat, we're easily overwhelmed when we think we're about to sink. But the hope of Christianity is that the Lord of the storm is in the boat with us, and he has the power to still any storm. And I'm sure like the disciples, like me, I wish he would still the storm sooner. Better yet, that he wouldn't let any storms come. But he does allow storms to come. And we may never know why he does, but honestly, we don't need to know why he brings the storm if we are convinced that he is in the storm with us. That peace that he is with us in the storm is actually better Our peace is actually deeper and better because Jesus allows these storms in our lives. For if he didn't allow the storms, our peace would be dependent on circumstances. But because he allows the storms and endures them with us, he enables us to have a peace that transcends circumstances, that defies and passes understanding, that is truly unassailable. And this is a great hope. It changes our external reality such that we can begin to endure storms no matter how bad with joy and hope. But lastly, making Jesus our good portion not only changes our desires, not only changes our internal and external reality, it changes our engagement with the world. You know, the goal here is not to be like Mary just sitting all day like some type of hermit reading about Jesus. And that's not the word that he has for Martha. If Martha would make Jesus her permanent portion, it would not make her lazy or indifferent, but it would heal her anxiety. And that would enable Martha to serve with renewed joy and peace and freedom. She'd be free from resenting her sister, free from the pressure to perform, free from fear, free from the fear of failure, free from doing it out of simple duty. See, Jesus, when he becomes our good portion, replaces those pressures with things like joy and love. And it gives us the ability to do Martha-like work with Mary-like hearts. See, it's not one against the other, it's both end. We can become more, um, we can enjoy our work more even as it becomes harder and more burdensome as we do our work for the glory of God and recognize that our work is one of the chief ways we can understand and know him and enjoy him.
This is good news, brothers and sisters, that we have a God who cares about our anxiety and does enough, cares for us enough to interrupt it and to heal it. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this word and your, this good word that you are a God who knows us personally and that you know what ails us, what troubles us. You know our anxious hearts. You know our pressing circumstances. And you abide with us. You have come to carry our burdens, to redeem each and every one, and to give us a great hope. And that, that hope of redemption that is external and objective changes our internal reality. This is the hope of Christianity. We pray that you would help us to get it down deep into our hearts, that we would desire Jesus more than all because we see that he is the king of glory and that as we do, it would enable us to engage the world, to work with Martha-like diligence out of a Mary-like heart that is captivated with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.